0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each new day online is a balancing act for parents. You like your child to explore the digital world safely, but also want to protect the precious offline moments you enjoy together. Google's Family Link app helps parents set digital ground rules for their child's Android device. Approve or block app downloads, set limit on screen times, even create a bedtime for your child's phone or tablet. Family Link lets you choose a balance that's right for you and your family. To find out more and see how Google can help search Google family link.
1: Hello and welcome to women with balls where I Katie balls speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Wales, but moved to Italy aged five at 16. She came back to Britain where she got free a levels and in her own words, scraped into university college, London, to studying modern languages. After university, she worked in customer services at Hobbes, the fashion brand, and then fell into journalism after a meeting at a pub. She went on to work at the Daily Mirror, The Guardian, The Daily Express, Tatler Magazine and The Times before starting her column for The Daily Mail, where she writes about everything from Love Island to her time married to a cabinet minister. She has been awarded Columnist of the Year multiple times. Her writing, however, has at times led to controversy, but as she said in an interview, I don't want any of the things that conformity gets you. It means that occasionally you get into a bit of a mess, but I'd do anything to avoid a quiet life. My guest today is Sarah Vine. So Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast. Pleasure. I'm thrilled you've been able to find the time because you've been very high on our list of people to get. I just don't, I'm not very good at answering emails. Yeah, I share that. I'm more of a WhatsApp person, if that. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) So we know for next time. To begin, we tend to ask everyone the same question, which is basically, would you describe yours as a happy childhood, how would you describe it?
0: Oh God, insane is the word I would use to describe my childhood. My mother will probably listen to this, so I just need to think about what I'm going to say here. Okay, my parents married very young. They were 21 when I came along, which is just really young when you think about it. My dad was super clever, first of his family to go to university. My mother also super clever, but sort of had her career scuppered by my arrival, rudely. Anyway, I was born in Wales, in Swansea. My dad's family from Mumbles and we did that for a bit. And then my mother, brilliantly. So they ended up living in Birmingham where my father was working, I think, for British Steel. And I think it was one rainy Sunday afternoon. My mother was reading the Sunday Times and decided that she was going to apply for my father to go to get a job in Rome. <laughs> so she did and he got the job. And so they moved to Rome. They just up sticks and moved to Rome. They sold their house had 100 quid, moved to Rome, didn't speak any Italian, two children under the age of five. My dad worked, wo- I say worked in inverted commas because I think it just involved basically having lunch quite a lot for Deloitte's. And, you know, they lived in a cottage in Grottaferrata, which is in Frascati, on top of a hill, and they had two children. And I they just slung me in the local Italian school. And I was this sort of enormous milk-fed English girl surrounded by tiny little sort of dark-eyed Italians and I think it took me about a month to learn to speak a decent enough Italian. It was very nice. My parents used to go out every night to the Trattoria and we had lots of friends and it was completely chaotic and they were both sort of quite glamorous and adventurous and still are. I mean they're in their mid-70s now but they still live in Italy.
1: And you did move back to London there and attended school there so Mm. what brought that
0: back. My father is a very difficult man and was a particularly difficult man when I was a teenager and I finished my sort of Italian middle school because Italy goes up to sort of 14 and then you go to the superiori so it's a kind of natural break and I decided I couldn't really live I could not only could I not really live in the same house as my father I couldn't really live in the same country as him so I came back to the UK and I sort of mooched around lived with a friend then lived a bit with my grandmother I mean I had a sort of very odd peripatetic sort of teenage years because I sort of I sort of basically ended up living on my own in a flat in Charlotte Street in Brighton at the age of sort of 17 and going to Lewis Tech and just being yeah I mean I was fine I was very lucky I was sort of scooped up by um the biology teacher I was bizarrely my A-levels were based on not very much I didn't really think about it but I did Italian I think I did Italian, English, French and biology for some unknown reason, because I liked the biology teacher. Anyway, she had four sons and she was a very lovely lady. And she sort of looked after me and got me through those years and I think filled in my ucker forms for me and got me into UCL.
1: Am I right in saying you briefly boarded in Sussex before being kicked out after a misunderstanding involving a oh, nightclub yes. in Piccadilly, <laughs> a 4am trip on the milk train from Victoria and the theft of some penguin biscuits?
0: Yes, that's correct. Although the penguin biscuits were separate, I think, from the 4am milk train. So I, <laughs> my parents briefly sent me to a boarding school in Sussex and I disgraced myself. Well, actually, I didn't disgrace myself immediately. The first few months, I was really miserable and had a horrible time and was bullied. And then I decided that the way to deal with the bullies was to basically become even cooler than the bullies. And this involved getting my hair cut short, getting contact lenses, but misbehaving you know, general kind of general sort of misbehavior anyway. It was Zenon's nightclub in Piccadilly. I don't know if you remember it. You're probably too young to remember it. But it was Zenon's nightclub in Piccadilly. And they had, and you had to be 21 to get in. And I was, I think, maybe 16. And some friends and I went off there and then decided to come back in at sort of on the milk train, which was the sort of early train back from Victoria and got caught. And then I think I was politely asked to leave, which I politely did.
1: You've also described yourself as quite a square child. So was that before the rebellious thing? I was. I was really square. So I was super, super
0: square. In Italy, I was super square and very introverted. And then coming to the UK was a real culture shock, actually, because I was very Italian, really Italian. So I had sort of, I was very studious, very sort of innocent, very bookish. And I came to the UK and I don't know, the English education system is very bizarre and it's, and you know, there was no bullying at my school in Italy. There was no almost horrible to anyone. It was, it was like, if you were weird and different, they just sort of let you get on with being weird and different. You weren't expected to be. It's very odd. It was, it was a very unpleasant time. And I think I reacted to being bullied, which I, I was quite badly bullied. They did have anti-Sarah Vine Association badges at one phase, I seem to remember. Very organized. I, I, they were very organized. I reacted by sort of going the other way. I think that's often a normal reaction if you're quite badly bullied. You sort of either crumble or you fight back and you sort of go, well, you're not going to get me and I'm going to actually come and get you. And that was sort of my response. It's sort of been my response all my life when I think about it.
1: (laughs) Did you find university was a happier time then when you went to UCL?
0: I was bored at university because I'd been living on my own for quite a long time already. And I think part of the fun of going to university is you know, leaving home for the first time, but I'd sort of already done that. So I got a job, really. And I got into terrible trouble because I had a job at the body shop. (laughs) I worked at the body shop on Oxford Street and my job was making those baskets, you know, the body shop baskets that you used to make. And we used to have to make them with a hairdryer and cling film. So I would sit in a sort of tower on top of the shop, putting together baskets of sort of, you know, peppermint foot lotion and stuff and then blow drying them. That was basically my job. Lovely. I did get a 50% discount though, so that was worth it.
1: I love the body shop. Um, so um, how did you get to journalism from your degree then? Because It
0: was a complete accident. So I was working for Hobbes doing their customer service. It was also sort of translating a bit for them because all their suppliers were Italian. This was before all manufacturing moved to China. So a lot of their dealings were with Italians. And of course, I speak Italian. And I was really bored and I really hated it. And a friend of mine had a friend who was doing some shifts on the Daily Mirror at weekends basically subbing and the thing is it was around that time when all the regulations were lifted about tv listings and all the all the newspapers are suddenly producing tv listings magazines and they needed people to basically regionalize all that it's very boring but they it was really regionalizing all the tv listings anyway so she said well come along to the pub on sunday and i'll introduce you to some people so i turned up at the pub in a really short skirt and chatted up some quite elderly subs and got a few shifts. And the thing is, because I was quite good on Apple Macs, because that th- was just when Apple Macs were coming in. And it was just when the Daily Mirror had bought a whole load of Apple Macs, and no one there, who worked there, who actually was a journalist, knew how to use them. So people like me were brought in to help with the Apple Macs. I was quite good at the Apple Macs, and I was just lucky. And I just learned on the job. And I mean, I sat for a long, many, many, many years doing TV listings, regionalizing tying teas, Meridian, all that sort of stuff. But it was, you know, it was quite, it was fascinating. And and I really fell in love with the world of newspapers. And it was really on the cusp of really changing because it was still full of, you know, very beardy men with short sleeves who you know were heavily unionized but were really skilled and really brilliant at what they did and only they could do it and then there were all these annoying people like me who were sort of coming in because computers were coming in and they were trying to get new blood in but the excitement and the thrill of producing a newspaper and being part of it just really got me by the neck and I just thought this is definitely what I want to do
1: and when you start to think actually I want to write my opinions that's the main thing
0: not for ages not for ages and ages and ages because I came in right at the bottom and I was a sub and I wasn't just a sub I was a tv listing sub which is the lowest of the low and so then I sort of climbed my way up and I became a sort of proper sub as it were like a natural word sub And then I started commissioning some pieces and then I became a sort of deputy editor and then I became a section editor. And so it was a long time before. So I became really good at making other people's words sound and look quite good. And I really loved and still do really love the geography of newspapers. I love the headlines, love the pictures, love putting a whole package together, like presenting things, you know, in a certain way. I love used to love doing all of that. It wasn't really until after I had my first child. So that would have been 18 years ago when I started writing some stuff. Because until then, I always felt that, I don't know, I just
1: felt that I wasn't ready. You know,
0: you've got to sort of earn it, really, I think. Did having your
1: daughter make you want to write more? Was it just the timing? Do you mean by that? I don't
0: know. I I think I just got older and I think I had more confidence. I found writing really difficult to begin with. I mean, it used to take me, you know a day to write 400 words. You know, I really found it hard and I was quite scared of it, you know, because I came up through that sort of tabloid sub-editor culture. You know, writers were gods. You know, they really were. They were just the gods of the newspapers. And you were the sort of minions kind of putting their stuff together. So that mentality sort of stuck. And I think I found it really hard to sort of see myself as a writer as opposed to an editor. But then after I had the children, I then started doing my own writing, and I did a beauty column, which I loved, lipstick column, and then I also wrote leaders for the Times. So I used to write the comedy thirds, which I was quite good at, and and then I guess I just again, you know, you just it's practice, you just build it up. It's like anything; it's
1: just practice. Yeah, it's like a muscle. Yeah. So, so you ease into it, and I, I just want to mean these days you're known for or you're seen as a very outspoken columnist uh, you're mm. multi-award winning and in a way it can often seem as though I mean perhaps you do but I think from the outside people would think you're not really worrying what the reaction is you're just saying what you think of the mm. time yeah but I wondered when you're um starting out and going down that route is there a time like can you think of a time when you kind of wrote a piece and suddenly, like, you you get that kickback and you think, oh, actually, this is what happens when you're an opinion writer?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yes. I don't really remember the first time that happened. I do remember always having quite strong opinions in my pieces. I've always been quite firm in my writing. And I think that that sort of bounce back came at the same time that Michael, my husband, ex-husband, became a politician. And so then you had that sort of suddenly everything got a lot more brutal and a lot more difficult just because that's how politics is. And at the same time, it sort of coincided with the internet really taking off. And so, whereas before you'd write a piece and it would go in the paper and then maybe some people would write a letter or something or someone might ring up. Now there were all the comments underneath the pieces. So that closeness to other people's views of you became much more, you know, noticeable. And I think... The way I managed to still write without worrying too much about that is, you know, you just have to, you just have to slightly put your fingers in your ears and say, this is what I think. And I've looked at the research I've done. I've taught yeah, I think I'm right. I'm just going to say it. And you, go, you can't get too worried about the reaction, because if you did, you would never say anything at all, even remotely interesting or challenging. And that's the job of the columnist, really.
1: And you mentioned Michael Gove, who you are now Mm. separated from. But when you were obviously writing these columns, as you touched on, you were in quite a Mm. unique position because you're Mm. coming out with your opinions, but also you have lots of people. And I was briefly a diary reporter, so at times, I remember skimming through your columns because people (laughs) are always looking to see if there's something they can reflect back to the government or say there's division or this is secretly what this person thinks so how did you find that did you have a discussion between the two of you about how you do that with your work or
0: not really I mean sometimes if it was things that I knew would annoy him I would check with him first I think the thing for me that you know whenever I have a long dark tea time of the soul which is usually about twice a week I do think to myself well would anyone be even remotely interested in anything I had to say had I not been married to a cabinet minister and Part of me thinks no. So I think you have to be quite sort of, you know, quite honest about that. I've tried to sort of bring my own value to the stuff that I do, but I do know that people still look at me and think that I'm just a sort of, you know, wholly owned subsidiary of Michael. And that's fair enough. That's just the way the world is. But I think that... Like I not the main thought, view, though. Well, no, but that's my own paranoia. I'm yeah. just telling you yeah. that, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what the demons in my head yeah. tell me. Yeah. You know, that's what they say to me. And you know what those things are like. They exist, you know, whatever, however successful you are or however successful people think you are, those things exist. But when I first started writing, I used to write quite a lot. You know, I I was a sort of, I guess, a lifestyle writer, really. And I would write about makeup and I would write about stuff and life and da, 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 da. And so Michael was very much part of all of that. So and, you know, he is he is a very funny, interesting person. And incredibly quirky and such good material in so many ways, you know, so that's, that's why he used to end up in the columns, because you know, he couldn't not put some of the things in because they were just too good to be true. But there is that difficulty between being a writer for a newspaper and having a politician in the family. I mean, you know, the two are really not very compatible.
1: And I, I do want to talk a bit about, I suppose, the Brexit referendum and the impact. Mm. But I, I want just first, when you joined the Mail, you said, you know, you were absolutely terrified, both that you wouldn't be up to the job, but also because you'd heard so many horror stories about the then editor, Paul Dacre. And so what was it like, you know, when you started working with the man on a daily basis?
0: Well, funnily enough, he's one of, I mean, I genuinely mean this, he's one of the nicest people I've ever worked for. I mean, honestly... I've worked for much more unpleasant people than Paul Dacre. The thing about Paul Dacre is that he was always just very honest and straight. And if you'd done a shit job, he would tell you that it was a shit job. And if you'd done a good job, he would tell you it was a good job. He was very straight. And the thing is, I'm a very straight person. So he and I have similar personalities and therefore I think it worked quite well. He just used to make me laugh. I mean, he's just sort of outrageous in a way that I can sometimes be outrageous. And he loves making... He's, he's very mischievous And that's something I don't think people realise about him is that he's fundamentally quite naughty and likes to cause trouble. And I'm fundamentally quite naughty and also quite like to cause trouble. So we got on very well, actually. And I was very sad when he went because he was a laugh.
1: (laughs) Do you still stay in touch?
0: No, actually, not at all. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I see him occasionally (laughs) at things and he says, oh, how are you? And that's it.
1: (laughs) I think he's probably less sentimental about it than I am. So, I'm sure I'd say exactly the same about you on a podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you get him on the podcast, do you ask
1: him. Yeah, I have to stretch the title slightly, but we can make it work. Now, when we're talking a bit about politics, I, I want in the sense that I think your writing is so widespread in terms yes, of, yes. I mean, I touched on the introduction in the sense I think one of the things that um, makes you stand out is the fact you can handle such a range of topics. Not
0: football. I can't
1: write about football. But after the Brexit referendum, clearly partly for the reasons you were talking about what it's like to be in a relationship with a politician, it Mm. brought an extra depth to it. So I was wondering, in what senses did you find the EU referendum was transformative in in your life?
0: Yeah, it was. Well, it was really, I mean, a huge, huge thing. Massive.
1: Before Um, and after almost.
0: Yeah, it changed everything. I mean, the main problem for me was that it destroyed my friendships with a lot of people who I really loved and was very close with. And it sort of took away my, really, well, I mean, it really pulled the ground out from under my feet in a funny kind of way. And it was also very brutal just in terms of, you know, the amount of scrutiny and the amount of abuse. And, you know, everyone just went mad. And it was very difficult navigating it with the children because they're both at state school. So that was quite difficult for them. It was a nightmare, actually, if I'm honest. Not much fun at all. <laughs>
1: And you also found yourself um a subject in a political story. And um, when we mm. look back to that email during the leadership, <laughs>
0: yes, a uh, Henry or a Beth?
1: Yes, exactly. Which was just for listeners who aren't aware. This is when ultimately an email you sent um, went to the wrong person. Ultimately, telling yes,
0: the- I don't know how it went. I, I'm still a mystery as to how it went to that other person because I don't know. I didn't know that other person at all. But for some reason, I think I just typed Henry because the other person was called Henry and I meant send it to Henry to the real Henry. It just did that thing of grabbing the wrong Henry and sending it to the wrong Henry who mysteriously happened to be a member of momentum or something and or a Labour party and therefore was delighted obviously to receive a copy of this email. Yeah. That was weird. At the time, it didn't seem like so bad, but that was because I just was not really paying attention because there was so much else going on. That was a nightmare. It didn't say, but it seems to be the one thing that stuck. And in fact, I remember when my daughter was doing Lady Macbeth at school, or Lady Macbeth, Macbeth, her teacher saying, oh, and your mother, isn't she Lady Macbeth? And thinking, "Quirky, okay, that really has got cut through. (laughs) <laughs> it's a bit, heavy, going
1: I think, a bit I mean, heavy I think I
0: thought anyway never
1: mind. I, mean, I think yes. it resonates for a few reasons I think one we're all terrified of sending the email to the wrong person yes and
0: I am now also terrified of we have that. all
1: done that in our time sending a text or whatsapp yeah. about the person we're talking about to the person I think very few of us are done on such a scale that it then becomes a front page and a political story of its own um, yeah. and yeah. then two I actually think it goes back to your Lady Macbeth comment which is there is, a tends to be a desire in the discourse and you can kind of jump to extremes to often, you know, s- suggest a female partner is the one who is, in this case, yeah. I think you were depicted as almost pushing your husband to yeah. do something, which is potentially against the...
0: Yeah, I mean, I wrote that email because he was having a really difficult time. He was exhausted. It was really tough and I just wanted to give him a bit of support. That was why I wrote the email. But literally the last thing I ever wanted to do was for him to become leader or go and live at number 10 or any of those awful things because I knew from knowing Sam Cameron so well what a nightmare it was for her and how difficult it was and I had no illusions and also Frances Osborne both of them had their own problems with it but in very different ways but that assumption that you just alluded to which I think is now being applied very unfairly to Carrie Johnson a lot of the time which is that you know all women want is for their men to be in power and so that they can, you know, stand behind the throne and rub their hands at glee. It's just, you know, it's very... Well, it's really misogynistic, actually, and it's also just not really true because if you had any experience, if anyone who's who's got any experience of politics knows that politics is highly toxic and highly destructive for families, and most women and mothers and wives don't want that for their families, actually, if they're at all sane.
1: I just wondered in that example, of what's interesting is I wonder why, as someone who's kind of seen it from both sides, because you experience it, but also you are a mm-hmm. journalist, so you can see how it works, even in papers that, you, mm-hmm. you know, you write mm-hmm. for. Do you think it's the fact there's almost like a lack of reply if you're Carrie Johnson, or even in your case, you have a column, but there's limits, to, you can't really use your column to daily to discuss mm-hmm. your interests of your husband's career and what you want for it?
0: No. I mean, the thing is, if I said all the things that I could say and that I did know... You're always holding back, and the other thing is, is that no one likes poor little meism. No one has any sympathy for politicians or their families. You know, we're just, you know, as Angela Rayner so succinctly put it, you know, scum, and that is that is a notion that persists. And it's like you're sort of undimensional subhuman. So therefore, the rules don't apply to you, and you just have to understand that that's the case, and that there's really nothing that you can do about it. The real question is how much of it can you take? And that is, that is a very personal question. And how much of it do you take before you make the decision that you can't do this to yourself anymore? And, you know, I think being in politics is a colossal act of self-harm. I honestly believe that. And I think anyone who is prepared to do it is extremely brave. People often say to me, oh, why don't you go into politics? I would not be able to do it. I I couldn't at all, because the things that you have to deal with and put up with and accept are very hard in this day and age, actually. I mean, I have no idea. Maybe it was always like this, but it seems... And it's process, it's a slow but steady process of brutalization, and it's just a question of how long you can deal with the world repeatedly punching you in the face every day, which is what happens when you're a politician.
1: And I suppose in that case... Has your perception of the whole political life and taking you changed over the years? It isn't-
0: yes. I mean, when you start out, you're full of sort of...
1: The thing is, it's a bit like having a
0: baby. Everyone can tell you what like having a baby is like and how difficult childbirth is, and you can read all the books on it you want and talk to all the people you want. But until you actually push a human being out through your vagina, you have no concept of how unpleasant it really is or how difficult or how painful. And it's the same with politics, is that you can read all the books and you can talk to all the people and you can. But until you really experience it on a day to day level for a long period of time, it's impossible to explain to anyone what it's really like. It's not always the big things that get you. It's often the tiniest little things that get you. And it's the way that things ambush you. And it's the constant sense of being under siege and not really having any control over what people say about you. And that your persona is always seen through a filter, and that you are always being bent out of shape by people in their minds. And that's, you know, you can't blame people for thinking like that. It is just what it is. But at the end of the day, the question, I suppose, is, you know, how much can you take? And that's, that's really it for me. And so I do understand when there's People like Gordon Brown disappear off into the wilderness for five years. I get that. Completely get that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's
1: healthy. But you're not You're not tempted to do that? Well.
0: <laughs> not yet. No, not yet. No, I'm sure lots of people would love it if I did.
1: Just the final thing on that is you've obviously had a, a year of change and you've written about, uh, you know, so just like marriage and politics in your column, you wrote about Matt Hancock and his affair. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just wonder, when you do that, I mean, is it a debate about how much of yourself to kind of make public? Is that something you mm. think about as you go? And and do you have some safe checks in there and things like, Is in, would you ever look at the comments on a piece, uh, you know, which touched on personal life and so forth?
0: No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't look at the comments and I always just try and stick to the point because you can allude to things, but you don't have to make them make them obvious. or You don't have to write them in big, red, inky letters. And I think that, like, when I wrote about Matt Hancock, part of me really sort of understood a little bit what both sides were going through. Do you know what I mean? I think it gives me quite a lot of perspective. I think, funnily enough, I'm one of the female columnists who's probably the most forgiving of other people's bad behaviour because I can sort of understand how you could end up I think the pressures are just so so heavy on these people. But I always think, mainly what I would do is I think about my children when I write it and I think, would they be embarrassed or upset? And if I think they would, then I don't write it. I think that's the best measure, really. Because they're teenagers now and it's their life, you know. So you have to be a bit respectful
1: of that. Do they read your column on a regular basis or do they just read it if if it's gone wrong?
0: (laughs) No, they do read it, actually. They listen to my podcast. And their mates read it as well. So you just have to be a bit mindful of the fact that it's not just you in the world. There are other people too.
1: Now, some of the pieces you read in the past have received you know, widespread criticism. I think there was a row over Jack Monroe. Oh, that was a long time ago. In fact, subsequently, I became quite good friends with Jack, actually. How did that come about?
0: I don't know. I think I just sent her an apology. I don't know. I think we just had a conversation on Twitter or something. It's funny, isn't it? You start off having a row and then you end up having quite interesting conversations with the person that you were having a row about with or whatever. But yes, carry on, sorry.
1: Oh, no, I know, d- I just wondered when it comes to this, do you ever, you know, once it's out in the world, you're you bit like, I actually do regret that or uh, any pieces or not so much?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm quite good at apologising when I get things wrong, which I do. I mean, everyone gets things wrong. And I'm always really happy for people to sort of have a kind of sensible conversation with me about something I've got wrong. Because as as I don't shout too much.
1: Now, just a few final questions. I just wanted to, I mean, you're obviously a very prolific columnist, but I feel like after, you know, what is it, a year and a half, two years of lockdown, lots of people are reassessing or thinking about things that they, you know, given weren't allowed to do anything, things they now want Mm. to do. When you're looking at, I mean, would you be tempted to move more to editing or anything like that? How do you see your kind of next few years?
0: Oh, I don't know. I've never really had a game plan. I've got to get through this divorce, which I think is quite a big hurdle. And then I've got to make sure the kids are okay. And I've just got to keep doing my job as well as I can. And then we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, funnily enough, the mail have been both the mail and the mail on Sunday, which I write for both, have been a sort of real haven, actually. It's very nice. And and I love my colleagues. I have lots of really good colleagues. It's a, it's a great place to work. So I'm very happy there, actually.
1: You mentioned your divorce... You know, particularly asking things during a talk. (laughs) It was my snoring, I'm
0: afraid. (laughs) It was my terrible snoring and my awful personal habits. He had no choice.
1: Have you found there's been too much public interest?
0: No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's a bit rich for me to... I mean, I'm a columnist. I write about other people. You know, of course, people are perfectly entitled to write about me. And my divorce, if they want to, it's not really that interesting, but they're very welcome to. Most people have been really kind of nice about it. The readers have been very nice about it.
1: So, you know... It's fine. It is what it is. And also now, your columns going forward, you have a certain level of freedom in the sense they can't be attached back to a member of the cabinet. Yes, I think my
0: husband must be quite relieved about that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get him into any trouble anymore. (laughs) He can just say, I have nothing to do with her. I have no idea who she is. I've never even met her.
1: Now the two final questions I have is just um, you've worked for a massive range of publications over a long period of time so do you feel that comment journalism has changed I know that wasn't what you're doing the whole time but I think there's two ways of looking at it I mean the fact that there's so much online comment means I think sometimes Mm. people kind of can actually take more drastic positions because Mm. you're looking more for that immediate hit but then also because you have this some might call it cancel culture, but the sense that there is this online, you know, it's not just a letters page. We can be more careful about what they say. So do you think it's changed much?
0: I think it's changed hugely. I think comment journalism has become... I mean, the thing about this is that the news is the news and it has no sort of, you know, there's no such thing as a scoop anymore. Everyone's got the news all the time immediately. So what differentiates you from any other publication is your capacity for analysis. And... I think that because of commenting online and because people have, you know, because of social media and opinions and all that kind of stuff, I think people are actually really interested in debating stuff much more than they ever were. So it's good. I get a lot of really intelligent responses to my articles. And people are, they're very good at formulating their opinions and they they love having those sort of challenging conversations, which I don't think they, and I don't know if that's different. It feels different to me anyway.
1: Yeah, and and I suppose I think... with events like Brexit, it feels as though mm. at least my friends are a lot more politically aware and mm. it does lead yeah. to more engagement in that sense.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if I look at my two children now, who you know, 16, 17, 18, they and their friends are much more informed and much more opinionated than we ever were at their age. You know, we were just, you know, smoking fags and sitting around listening to bands. Whereas they're all sort of, you know, they know about, you know, they, the girls are all very engaged and, you know, it's it's interesting. It's, it's a very different atmosphere, but it's good. I think it's really good. And I think it's what keeps you alive, isn't it? Having thoughts and opinions about things and and just trying to work out how you feel about these quite important issues. I mean, I think there's a lot of data that comes at us now. And I think comment journalism helps make sense of that data. And if you've got somebody who's a writer who you sort of like and who you vaguely agree with it's almost like having a conversation with that person and often my readers will email me and say oh, I'm so glad you wrote about x because I was thinking about it the other day and I just couldn't work out where I where I was on it and then you wrote a piece about it and I think I agree with you but I disagree with you on this point point. and so there's a sort of dialogue there which I think is really nice and really helpful.
1: Now, the final question I want to ask you is one we ask everyone. You may have been (laughs) pre-warned. And it's, what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether or not you took it on board, told them to go away?
0: I think it was, it was the morning of the referendum vote and I was standing in my hallway and I said to Michael's special advisor, do I look okay? And he said, yes, you look great. And actually I looked absolutely shit. I was wearing the worst outfit I've ever worn in my entire life. And it wouldn't have mattered, were it not for the fact that that photograph of me in a really awful leopard skin, leopard print, Marks and Spencers top, and a jacket that's two sizes too small for me, has literally followed me around the internet ever since. I'm being trolled by, <laughs> by the photograph of my, I'm being told by myself, dressed as, I don't know what, a sort of fat Bet Lynch. And it's just awful you might have to get I don't know if you have any visuals on your podcast but you may have to actually get it so that you can show your listeners the full horror so that was quite bad advice
1: could make it the, the actual picture on the podcast yeah that would be really lovely that feels I'd like that might the nicest thing to
0: yeah. do. and then just push that out through all your social media channels that'd be really nice I'd love that yeah that's probably the worst bit of advice and it was a kind of well no one's looking at you but actually weirdly they were annoyingly so yeah that was terrible it was bad it's like meeting george
1: Clooney without any
0: makeup on but
1: worse (laughs) thank you sarah and thank you for listening and if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts please do get in touch just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk